the thing about Hitler is that he was anti-Jewish, so hating of Jews, um, and a lot of uh, Jews blame Christendom for Hitler, which I have to say is an unfair thing to do, because Hitler was a heathen, really. Um, he, he was a nominal Catholic, but he wasn't a true Catholic. He was a heathen. And that's an important thing to bear in mind when talking to uh, Jews, because this always comes up. Uh, I know that because I've interacted with Jews in Israel when I grew up there, when I lived there, and it often came up. And I actually, when I was a student, I had a, an argument in the uh, local press in Glasgow with a local Monsignor who claimed that the Catholic Church uh, protected the Jews during the Holocaust and worked in their favor. And it's far from the truth. Unfortunately, the Vatican blessed the armies of uh, Mussolini and uh, so, and there was complete silence when the Jews were being massacred. Um, so anyway, that's a, almost a diversion. But um, who are the Semites? Uh, well, you all know about Noah and his three children. So Shem is the father of the Semites. The, the tree you see in front of you, not, not everybody subscribes to it, but essentially the... Um, the Jews and the Arabs come from Eber, and that's in the Bible. And then it is thought that most of the Arabs branched off here, Yuktan. The, the descendants of Yuktan are called the true Arabs. That's important because Muslims claim that Muhammad descended from Ishmael. Well, Ishmael's lot are called Arabized Arabs and not true Arabs. And Islam makes a big deal of the Arabic language and you know, Arabism and so on. And of course, the Jews came out of um, Abraham. So we're all Semites. You can see the Assyrians are Semites, the Jews are Semites, Arabs are Semites. Some of the North Africans are of mixed blood, Jewish, and uh, the Phoenicians were Semites, the Canaanites were Semites, and so on. So Jews are not the only Semites. The Arabs also um, descend from the second wife of Abraham, he married a concubine when Sarah died. Her name was Ketura, uh, which means incense if you're interested. But she had six sons, and they're thought to have contributed to the Arab nation. So this, this map is supposed to show you um, the Middle East. And there was a time when there weren't Jews and Arabs. and There were Semites. They were called Northern Semites, Western Semites, Southern Semites. And the languages developed. But even at the time of Jesus, the Jews were speaking Aramaic. The Arabs in Arabia were speaking a mixture of what we know now as Arabic and Aramaic. But Aramaic is supposed to be the oldest uh, Semitic language. And um, now, the Christian Semites. Well, the Christians in the Middle East. Um, were mainly of Arab descent. The Jews, as we all know, are a tiny part of the Semitic nations. And the faith came directly from the beginning, from the preaching of the early church. They were present at the time of the Pentecost, on the day of Pentecost. Then later on, through the Byzantines in the uh, west, and then through the Ethiopians here in the south, 
Um, and we know that, for instance, the uh, Sassanids, the Persians, had the Lachmids who were Arabs, an Arab tribe, fight with them against the Ghassanids. My family comes from the Ghassanids. They originally came from Yemen. Um, and most of the families, the Christian families who live in the Levant, uh, are of Ghassanid de descent. Um, so can you be a Christian and an Arab? We've already answered it, but I'll give you more. Um, so we've already mentioned the day of Pentecost. When Paul uh, was converted, he escaped to Arabia, and that's supposed to be the southern, southern Syria or northern uh, Saudi Arabia. And um, we know that he interacted with people, not from the Bible, but from tradition, so by the 4th century, most of the Middle East, including North Africa, was almost solid Christian, not entirely Christian, but certainly Palestine uh, and Syria. We'll skip this map. Um, so if you read uh, Arab history, it's mainly, it was mainly written by Muslims. Um, so you're reading, really, the Muslim history until recently. Um, Christians were almost unacknowledged uh, um, soon after Muhammad. And the Muslim historians call the pre-Islamic era the era of ignorance, al-jahiliya, if any of you speak Arabic. The era of ignorance. Ignorance of God, that's the intention, and ignorance in general. Interestingly, Islam calls its uh, clergy ulama, ulama, which means scientists. To us, a scientist is a physician, a physicist, um, chemist, a biochemist. But to them, a uh, scientist is someone who knows Islam very well. So you are ignorant, guys. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, but we know that Arabs were... Uh, Christianity was um, you know, well spread amongst the Arabs because of um, archaeology. Um, so here I'm showing a gravestone which in Arabic reads Bisalam, which means in peace. So this is a Christian saint, Saint George, Mount Nebo in Jordan. And uh, that goes back to 536. So about a hundred about 70 years before Muhammad began his ministry, 80 years. So we know that uh, Christians were already there practicing their faith. And Saudi Arabia, as we know it now, was called Arabia. It was called Heresium. So it was full of heresy. It was famous for uh, Christian heresy. For instance, we have the epitaph of uh, uh, an Arab poet and uh, king of the Lachmids, from 328 with, with the earliest uh, Arabic inscription. So the Aramaic nations, eventually called the Assyrians, were the first to actually have an alphabet, followed by the Nabataeans, who lived you know, just south of the Dead Sea on the Jordan side, um, uh, the Jews well before the Arabs, and the Arabs were late coming into the world of writing. Uh, but it was the Christians who 
invented it, used it, and spread it. And in fact, you'll hear Muslim propagandists, I don't know what you'd call them, claim that Islam brought algebra and uh, science. And all. It's not true. It's the Jews and the Assyrians and the Christians, basically, who translated all the Greek works um, into Arabic. It wasn't the Muslims. It was the Christians and the Jews. When I say Christians, they're usually Assyrian Christians. Some of them are Arab Christians. Um, so not only is it true that Arabs can be Christian, but the Christians have always contributed greatly to the Arab nation. Here's an example, an Arab poet whose verses appear in the Quran. Huh? In the Quran, word for word. You don't need to read Arabic. Everything boxed in red comes from that Arab poet. So, um, before, in the pre-Islamic era, there were um, seven or eight poets famous for being excellent. And again, that's according to Muslim history. We don't know the truth. Um, and the poetry used to be draped all over the Kaaba, you know, the cubicle in Mecca, which they claim Abraham built. And most of these were Christian. So can you be a Christian and Arab? Yes, of course. Uh, the Christian tribe of Taghlib was the biggest tribe in the history of the Arabs. And when Muhammad came and, uh, and conquered uh, most of the Arab world now and his, four, his caliphs after him, Taghlib refused to pay uh, what is called protection money, uh, jizya, which really means punishment. Um, there's, uh, and it was said they were so powerful, I've quoted uh, someone, uh, had Islam come a little later, the Badu Taghlib, the Christians, would have swallowed up all mankind. So you'd have had a Christian Arab empire instead of a Muslim empire. But it wasn't God's will. So, again, one of the most famous Arab poets, Al-Akhtal, was a Christian. He was known for um, wearing a cross, a big golden cross, wherever he went. He wrote about his faith. He wrote about how Christians celebrated their faith on a Sunday morning. And um, he was best mates with one of the most powerful a Muslim caliph named Muawiyah, the first Umayyad caliph, if any of you are interested in uh, Arab history, and his son. And Muawiyah uh, was married to a Christian lady. So his son was brought up a Christian. That's probably the sixth caliph. Um, in fact, those two, Muawiyah and his son, had the cross on every building they built, which contributes to the theory that Islam, as we know it, has actually developed over two or three centuries. So it was never what we, uh, as it is now, it, it had developed into this form. But he refused, for instance, to eat halal meat. He said, I'm a Christian, I will not eat halal meat. I don't have to do as you do. Um, he used to drink heavily, unfortunately. That's not very Christian. But uh, for Muslims, it's a no-no, you don't drink, at least not in public. And there's a story about him. A bit of humor, forgive me, I'm not promoting drinking, by the way. I think it's a great evil, both as a Christian and as a doctor, obviously drinking in excess. Um, but um, he once appeared before uh, the Khalif, and uh, he was asked to recite some poetry. He said, oh, my throat is dry. Bring me something to drink. So they brought him water. He said, uh, my donkey drinks water. I don't want water. <laughs> so the Khalif said, bring him milk. So they brought him milk. He said, I'm not a baby. And so on and so forth. So eventually the Khalif got 
really angry with him and chucked him out. So he went to uh, one of his servants and said, he said, the commander of the faithful, that is Khalif, ordered me to recite, but my voice was hoarse. Give me some wine. So the guy did. Then Al-Akhtal said, match it with another. So he did. You had left the two of them fighting in my stomach. Better give me a third. So he did. Now, you've left me listing to one side. Give me a force for balance. Okay, well, I don't recommend that. But a Muslim wouldn't have done that. Not a good Muslim. So Christians were present uh, very much so in Arab, um, in pre-Islamic Arabia. So, yeah, I've already mentioned uh, Al-Mu'allaqa, the, you know, the hanging poetry. So that's Al-Kaaba. Uh, which is where Muslims do pilgrimage every year. It's one of the four or five pillars of Islam. You must do pilgrimage to Mecca if you can. Now, back to archaeology. There's a church in Saudi Arabia, in Jubail, which has the cross very clearly marked, engraved, discovered in 1986. Uh, it was an Assyrian church, and they have actually allowed Assyrians to visit it and hold services. Uh, Zafa in Yemen... That's another place where they've discovered uh, remains of uh, a church with Christian uh, symbolism. Uh, remains of a church in uh, Serbani Yas Island. Um, the reaction of some Muslim clerics is interesting. How can crosses be displayed when Islam doesn't recognize that Christ was crucified? At least they're honest. Um, but I am pretty sure the sands of Arabia hide many, many uh, churches. I look forward to the day when the uh, scriptures will be discovered in Arabic. I can't believe that the scriptures were not translated into Arabic. And I think it's a matter of time before we discover something. Um, right, the next section is Jewish anti-Arab anti-Semitism. Now, let me say, um, well, I've already said really... Um, I love the Jewish nation for the reasons I mentioned, but they're not perfect. And um, from personal experience, I grew up in Israel. I was called a dirty Arab by Jewish kids quite often. You were made to feel inferior. Um, I remember the Jewish uh, port in South uh, Israel, I forget, um, uh, near Elat. Um, the, the, lab the workers went on strike. And I remember... Uh, they're being told by the Israeli police, stop behaving like Arabs. Um, the Talmud. Now, Martin Luther is often criticized for being anti-Semitic. Very few people mention why he reacted. I, I won't justify his reaction. It's unjustifiable from a Christian point of view. It's actually shameful. But he actually discovered the Talmud and what it says about Jesus being a bastard, Mary being a, um, a prostitute, and um, you know Christians being dirty, filthy, uh, worthy of killing, they will boil in excrement and so on. Terrible stuff in the Talmud. And that's not often talked about. I actually quote in my book, in my initial copy, I quoted a Russian priest who discovered the Talmud. And of course, over the years... Uh, he was accused of being an anti-Semite and my first publisher said, oh, better not quote him, he's an anti-Semite. I said, really? 
Why? Oh, he just is. So I quoted the same stuff written by Professor Israel Shahak, a Jewish Israeli professor of history, a survivor of the Holocaust. And he's quite scathing about the Talmud and its contents. Um, now, he says for centuries, uh, to tell it, uh, well, you can read it. Essentially, what he's saying is you can't blame the bad treatment of Jews on anti-Semitism. Some of it is their reaction to some of your bad attitudes. And, um, I mean, the official state line of Israel, according to Ben-Gurion, is he refused to hold an Israeli ID because it had Arabic on it. Uh, Golda Meir, who a lot of people thought was a moderate, um, she said, we want a pure Arab state, a Jewish state. We don't want Arabs living with us. The latest um, law passed in Israel, June 18, only gives the Jews the right of self-determination. And Arabic has been downgraded from the, an official language. We have three official languages, Hebrew, English, and Arabic, to a language with special status. Sounds good, but it's actually a demotion. Um, now, so as Christian Arabs living in Israel, we suffer as Arabs, we suffer as Christians. I have to say, when I say suffer, I'd rather live in Israel any time than in any of the Arab countries surrounding Israel because um, life is far better in Israel for any Christian than it is amongst the Muslims um, surrounding us, unfortunately. That's, and, and the irony is, uh, Muslims claim to love Jesus and Mary. In fact, Muhammad, when he conquered Mecca, he removed all the icons and the idols from uh, Mecca, that building, I showed you the cubicle, but he took uh, the icon of Jesus and Mary and put them against his chest. Uh, but that's the paradox, yet Islam has been so hateful of Christians and Christianity, whereas the Jews who officially, they rejected Christ, is not a, Muslims say Jesus is prophet to Jews, Jesus is not a prophet. In fact, they'd rather not speak about him at all. And in the Talmud, he's an illegitimate child. And yet, we are far better treated in Israel than we are in Arab countries. But life in Israel isn't perfect. Churches are burnt. There are extremist uh, Haredi uh, Jews who call for burning of churches and destruction of uh, Christians. Um, so you, the, the translations at the bottom are not accurate, but the first one says um, uh, death to, all Christ, to Christians. The second one says uh, we will crucify you. The third one says uh, Jesus, the son of a prostitute, or, yeah, and so on. So these don't come from nowhere. They come from the Talmud. And um, this, this chap uh, had set a house on fire and killed the entire family. He was sentenced for six months, an Arab family. If he'd killed the Jewish family, he would be there for, for life. So let's get this one. We talked about the New Testament. Uh, in Arabia, uh, 
there was a good big Jewish community. Some had come to Arabia, um, you know, escaping persecution in Palestine. We're talking before Christ, obviously. And others were Arab tribes who converted to Judaism just as they had converted to Christianity. Some um, Arab tribes had converted to Judaism. And this uh, king, Dunawas, he is said to have been an Arab whose tribe had converted to Judaism, and he became ruler of uh, Himya, which is in Yemen. In one night, he ordered the killing of a Christian town with 20,000 in one night. Um, Islam was successful not because it's a good religion. Islam was successful because when Muhammad came, the Persian Empire and the Byzantine Empire had exhausted each other through hundreds of years of fighting, completely exhausted. And the last battle between the two was in 614 when Jerusalem was completely destroyed. That was instigated by the Jewish um, lobby in Persia and they formed an army of 25,000 that's just Jews from Persia, to conquer Jerusalem and re-establish their presence in Jerusalem. And had many historians believe that had this not happened, Islam would not have, have been successful because it would have had to deal with both Persia and Byzantine, and, or Byzantium. But they were both exhausted through war, and that last war was just too much for both of them. Muslim anti-Christian Arab anti-Semitism is complicated, isn't it? But it's anti-Semitism against Christians by Muslims. Um, that's how are we doing for time, by the way? Yes, that's um, about ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay. I'll, yeah. So um, when when uh, Muhammad died, he was succeeded by four of his friends called Khalifs. Khalif means successor. One of them called Omar was quite fierce. He imposed conditions on Christians wherever uh, Islam ruled and he made it sound voluntary. So if you read the conditions, the Christians say, I, I volunteer, I promise not to build a church. I promise not to ride on a, a horse but ride on a donkey and so on. Um, but some of the conditions have been re revived by ISIS. This is real, it's not just theory. And, um, and some of these conditions are still practiced in the Arab world, in fact, most of them. Do you think you can build a church in even Egypt? They bring every excuse under the sun to forbid the building of a church. In fact, the only church I know of that has been built, um, has been built recently by President el-Sisi to commemorate the 21st Libyan martyrs, 20 of whom were Egyptian. Um, so you're not allowed to sound the bells in your church on Sunday. Um, you can't bury your dead next to a Muslim because you, according to the Quran, you are nijis, that is filthy. Um, and so on, but you can look it up. It's in, in the book, by the way. Um, you're familiar with this picture? Are you familiar with it? Yeah? So I've 
in my first edition, I had a, well, you saw the first, the cover, and some of my friends said it's too shocking. So I put it on the back cover this time. But that picture is also shocking, but it's true. But it didn't come from nowhere. It came from the Quran. Fight those who do not believe in Allah. Allah is not our God. Allah is the Muslim God. Or in the last day and who do not consider unlawful what Allah, that is Islam, and his messenger have made. Have you noticed it's always Allah and his messenger? And one of the criticisms of Islam against Christianity is called shirk, association. So Jesus being you know, associated with God, why can't you just worship God without Jesus? But in the Quran, you can't see Allah without Muhammad or his messenger next to him. But fight against those who basically are not Muslim. And then in Quran 2191, kill them wherever you f- overtake them. A lot of uh, clever Muslim apologists, shall we call them, will say to you, oh yes, but you're taking it out of context. Well, the Quran gives no context. It gives neither historical nor geographic context. It's just a chain of declarations and um, there are as many people who will take it literally as those who will interpret it. And I think as in liberal Christianity, hermeneutics is just a tool for obfuscation, not for explanation. It's just meant to um, blind you to the true obvious meaning. But there's no doubt that uh, these people were not evil, they were not born evil, no more evil than you or me. But it's the religion they were exposed to, the scripture they were exposed to inspires violence. Which brings me to an advertisement, another book which should have been printed today, Does Muslim Holy Writ Validate Muslim Violence? I'm not interested in criticizing Muslims because had you been born in Saudi Arabia, it would have probably been the same. We'd all been the same. More interested in Islam. And um, so most of my front covers will contain scripture, Muslim scripture, to emphasize the fact that we are, my, my objection is not to the Muslim, it's to Islam. And, and that is a problem that we encounter in the Middle East. Even today, a Christian cannot testify, even in Egypt, against a Muslim. Your witness would not be acceptable. Then, uh, Christians are not allowed to build churches. Christians, uh, Christian women are captured and are forced into intercourse. I wouldn't even call it marriage. They're raped by Muslim men. Um, in, according to one survey, one million Palestinians support ISIS. What does that tell you? And if I tell you that Nazareth, when I was a little boy, was mostly Christian, now it's 65% Muslim. Uh, Bethlehem used to be 80% Christian in 1948, now it's 80% Muslim. According to Al Jazeera survey, 60% of their audience support ISIS. And there are shocking statistics in this country, something like 30%. And I can't remember the percentage of people who said, I don't know, which is really shocking. You should know. Uh, you've heard about the case of Miriam Ibrahim. I won't say much about it, but I just want to um, applaud her. I want to celebrate her because of her amazing witness. Uh, I heard her in an interview uh, 
uh, and she was asked whether she was tempted to give in and deny Jesus. And she said, how could I after what he had done for me? Wow. Praise God. Um, <clears throat> Andrew White tells stories, um, you know, the vicar of Baghdad, um, about four children in his congregation who were slaughtered by ISIS because they refused to deny Jesus. In Nazareth, the Church of the Annunciation, you see scriptures from the Quran draped on the wall of the church, and it, it's a direct challenge to essential Christian doctrine, which is the Holy Trinity. Um, and, and that's fairly common. You see this in the West? We're actually seeing a glimpse in the West of what uh, Christians have to live through in the Middle East. And in, in the Middle East, Christian property is regularly confiscated. You think ISIS is evil? ISIS has taken the property of Christians and sold it to members of the Iraqi and Syrian government. Um, this is the, a picture of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Some of you will have visited. The Ottomans built a tannery next door to it. They would not tolerate a tannery next to a mosque. In Arabic, it's called the Church of Al-Qiyama, which means the resurrection. They call it the Church of Al-Qimama, which means rubbish because it stinks. Can you imagine saying this about Mecca? Arab nationalism. Who actually started Arab nationalism? It was started by Christians. It was Christians who um, started printing. Christian monks started printing in Iraq. And then that spread to Syria. Uh, Lebanese Christians went to Egypt, started uh, newspapers. And it was the Christians who led the revival of the Arabic language and modernization of the Arab world. Um, but they have been squeezed out. You often hear um, even Christian Arabs say that, you know, it's okay, we, we live fine, you know, we're, we're coexisting without any problem. That comes from fear. Even members of my own family will refuse to complain because they're afraid of repercussions. I know of a Christian missionary in Bethlehem. I know what they go through, and they refuse to complain. They're afraid. I know a leader in Cairo, a leader of two million Christians, who refuses to, wor the, to use the word persecution. He said to me, we are not persecuted. And one of his assistants said, he's afraid of the government. He does not say we're persecuted. That's the amount of fear. So I describe the, our, our existence um, Arabic-speaking Christians in the Middle East, uh, similar to living in the shadow of a volcano. Most of the time it's okay, but when it erupts, my goodness, it does erupt. And unfortunately, the volcano of Islam erupts too often with terrible consequences for the church. This is a short, so I'm almost there, Clive. Uh, Christian anti-Arab anti-Semitism. I'm talking about evangelical Zionists. Uh, I think 
maybe, maybe you're different, but there used to be an all-colonial missionary attitude towards Arabs, which I've experienced living in Israel. It's obvious that Jewish Christians are preferred over Arab Christians. There's no doubting that. There's a, Jew, there's a Christian university in Tel Aviv, and one of the lecturers there said to my nephew, who's a, an Anglican canon in Haifa, he said, look, he said, American Christians love us. And he phoned me, he said, Uncle Emil, he said, you wouldn't believe how beautiful university they built them. Beautiful university. Um, there's a near complete neglect of the church in the Middle East. I mean, people go to the Holy Land. My nev- my, one of my other nephews is a well-qualified um, guide. He's actually got a PhD in church history. And he just can't get work. He can get work by licking the feet of, you know, licking the boots of some Jewish um, tourist agents. But churches will not hire him. They'll rather hire uh, a Jew. Hundreds of million, millions of dollars come from Europe and um, America to Israel. And Christians are languishing in refugee camps in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, and even Egypt. That's shame on the church. Who would be interested in starting an international fund for the operation, for the repatriation of the Christians in the Middle East? I'm trying to register it as a charity. Pray for me. I end the book with a challenge to the Muslims to remember that they're actually persecuting their kith and kin and to say, you know, what's a source for the goose, a source for the gander. You're well treated in Europe. Treat Christians well in your home. A plea to the Jews. And then I end with a Semitic dream of peaceful coexistence. How is that for time? Last, um, they think of some questions because uh, I didn't. Uh, Rob's been in London, so I've not got up to speed on kind of modern technology for questions. We're going to have old style. So if um, Tim and Lizzie like to be available, um, just but but how has it um, played out in in your life? Because um, uh, you know you did well in school, but you weren't really able to study medicine. In Israel? No. Um, I mean, one has to be fair. Uh, things have improved in that respect in Israel, but there's still inequality. There's still the infrastructure in Arab towns and villages is terrible compared with Jewish in- infrastructure. The tri- uh, church schools in Israel are the best performing, always, always have been. Uh, and the Jewish state is trying to control church schools more and more. Um, but I, I couldn't study uh, medicine in Israel unless my father went. My, my father used to be a police inspector in the British Mandate Police Force, and um, under his care were people like Moshe Dayan and all the political prisoners. As a Christian, he was very kind to them. He actually saved some of their lives because he released them late because he knew there was a plot to kill them and so on. So he could, he could go to the government and say, you know, could you please help? So I know one of my cousins who's now a professor of diabetes and in fact head of pediatrics in um, Haifa, you know, he should have been accepted because he was brilliant. Uh, triple 
A star stars, uh, but it took intervention from my father to actually get him in. Yeah. But I have to emphasize, I would rather live in Israel than any Arab country. Mm -hmm. you, you could have gone to Romania if you joined the Communist Party, <laughs> I believe. So. Yes, that was a common route for a lot of uh, young Arabs. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a Christian, obviously, I wouldn't. But uh, yeah. anyway, we'll see if... Uh, but you, you came over here and you somehow lived by faith and you ended up becoming a doctor after quite a long Praise God, yes. And I was adopted by a vicar and his wife. And uh, yeah, they're still they're, they're long with the Lord, but their children are my siblings, really. So, yeah. Good. Well, you probably realise that obviously all history is selective, and there's lots yes. of what you've said to us which we would be completely unaware of because yeah. it doesn't come up on our historical radar at all. Yeah. But yeah, opportunity for any questions of Emil. Ah, there's one, Graham. Graham. Um, what hope do you think there is for restoring the church in Syria? Right, there's opportunity and hope. I see that now is a golden opportunity because, you know, destruction, you, you know, you, you, could, you could... I built two surgeries. One was from nothing. The other, I took an old building... Change, you know, pulled it down and rebuilt. So, and I think that's an opportunity. And one of my next books will be um, "Till Your Kingdom Come," and that, that is, the Christians of the Middle East will continue to be persecuted till they have their own kingdom. And Syria is a Christian country. Syria, Islam is the only colonialist power that has survived for 1,400 years. We in England, in the UK, are beating ourselves up over our colonial past. Muslims have never apologized. Syria is a, has been colonized. Yeah? Syria is not originally, it was Christian. It was Islamized by force. And when I say Syria, that includes what we know now as Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. Um, yeah. Well, what hope is there? If things continue as they are, little, little hope. But I hope maybe somebody will hear the message and uh, who knows? Who knows? What, what do you think? Do you, do you think? It seems to me there's a massive hole there now that needs to yeah. be filled, that there's been a wave of immense destructions gone through and most yeah. of the Christians seem to be the ones that are now languishing on the Turkish border, wrong side of the Turkish border. Yeah and that um, it's going to need a lot of help from the West to, yes. to re-establish them. Yeah. And unless the West looks at it and thinks, actually, this is the root of our own heritage, uh, we're not going to, we're not actually, we're, they'll die. The mm. churches will die, and those people yeah. will be dispersed, uh, and they'll wind up probably dispersed in Europe somewhere. Uh, and that will be an immense loss, because they are, yeah. you know, they're a precious part of our history. I think so too. So you're going to join me in uh, IFROCOM, the International Fund of the re for the re Repatriation of the Christians of the Middle East. Thank you, Graham. Wonderful. <laughs> My Jewish cousin. <laughs> um, Ruth, coming to you. You showed a chart which showed um, where the Semites came from, yeah. from Shem. Yeah. Do all 
descendants of Shem consider themselves the Semites, and it's only the Jews who've actually claimed it as being anti-Semitic, and therefore they're the ones that get all the airtime. Uh, yes and no. It, it, to be fair, it was the uh, um, Germans who coined the term anti-Semitic, but the, Jew, the Zionists, I would say, have exploited it. Um, as I say, not all Jews are Zionists, but yes. Could you? Uh, yes, you, you said that right at the beginning, and I suddenly realized I didn't realize the difference between a Zionist and a Jew. Can you just... Okay, so the word Jew describes your religion and, in a sense, your genes, your, your blood. Uh, and that's, again, open to debate. Uh, it could describe your culture. So there are five ways in the state of Israel of being, being acknowledged as a Jew. But uh, a, Z- a Zionist is someone who doesn't have to be a Jew, but who subscribes to Zionism, which is uh, the right of return to the, state of, to the land of Israel. Um, so you could be an evangelical Zionist. In fact, there are more evangelical Zionists than there are Jewish Zionists. And uh, a question, one more question, if we like, before we have coffee. John. Uh, you alluded to the Persian-Byzantine conflicts and both uh, groupings being exhausted and leading to tragic consequences. Um, what lessons might we learn from that reality for us in the West today? Frankly, I don't see an equivalence. I mean, we don't have a new religion knocking on our doors. Um, I suppose in general, I, my policy in life, I've always said to one of my best friends who's had a 25-year fight with Apple, who stole his idea, choose your battles carefully. I mean, is it worth the fight? And as Christians, our fight is different. It's not with weapons. It's not, you know, it's a spiritual fight. So the problem in the Middle East is fundamentally spiritual. I think we have to, I mean, if I were a, uh, if I were, uh, a king in the Middle East or head of a state, I would have a duty before God to protect my people. But I pursue peace to the end. So I think one needs wisdom, but it's difficult to apply that situation to today? I mean, do you have, do you have an answer in mind? I, I, I have an observation, namely, uh, there is a shift, as I see it, in power in contemporary Turkey, which opens up the question of its role in the future vis-a-vis both East and West. Yes. Well, yes, I mean, you have a point there. Turkey, at least Erdogan, who is a fundamentalist Muslim, by the way, um, has dreams of reviving the Ottoman Empire. And the only reason he's not punished Saudi Arabia for killing uh, Jamal Shakogi on his land is he, you know, he's looking for concessions from them. So you have three, maybe four centers of power in the Middle East, Muslim centers of power. So Turkey is one of them, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Iran. And uh, he believes he will rule over the Muslim world again. That's what he believes. Uh, hello, I must admit, I admire you guys because I wouldn't sit through talks in an evening, two talks in an evening. Well, <laughs> I don't care who gives those talks. But uh, here we are. Well, thank you again for your hospitality and for uh, being...
um, willing to listen, and I hope you'll take the first talk to heart. And I would love to hear from any of you if you wish to support the return of the Christians of the Middle East. Um, I have Baroness Cox on board, so uh, every little bit helps. Now, a slightly related topic in that politically, people are right to be afraid of Muslims being in this country, politically. I, I practice medicine in Tilbury, a fairly deprived area, and most of my patients were bitter because they couldn't get appointments, blah, blah, blah. So I could understand their objection. And I don't believe any immigrant, I'm an immigrant, I didn't come to this country with a right. I didn't have the right to come to this country. I'm grateful I've been accepted. But as a Christian, I see the wave of immigrants as an opportunity to evangelize. These people, if they had they remained in their own country, would probably never have had an opportunity to have a discussion, shall we say, about Jesus. So we should be grateful that God has sent them, and we should be looking for opportunities to reach out to them. And I'm doing a PhD at what used to be called London Bible College. Uh, it's now called LST, London School of Theology, on... Um, Muslim converse to Christianity, cause and consequence. That's why the title. So it's an area of interesting, uh, interest to me. Um, so I will start with a long introduction and then I will share a couple of studies with you. Um, I was going to do a questionnaire, but I, I ran out of time. Right, so the aims are to help us understand why and how Muslims come to Christ. I uh, will talk about some... Uh, evangel evangelistic uh, theories. Uh, I will try to answer the question by sharing testimonies with you. And then if we have time, I don't think we'll have time for a group session, so we'll skip that. Uh, but I may ask you questions and feel free to un you know, shout your answer. Uh, I'll share two studies uh, and questions at the end. So uh, Martin Akkad is a Lebanese uh, Baptist who described four or five, it's been modified, ways of evangelizing. If you can read, I think the first two are useless. I wouldn't recommend them. I hope you agree with me. But um, the third one, the charismatic, is essentially preaching or sharing directly. It can be aggressive, and there are people who've tried that. There's a German missionary who lived, um, I think, in India amongst the Muslims, Fanda, I think he lived in the 1800s, um, who evangelized simply by showing Muslims how bad their religion was. Um, now, you can mix it by comparing it with Christianity, with the New Testament. I say the New Testament because the Old Testament obviously is full of violence, uh, I say we live in the New Testament. The Old Testament is our backdrop. Um, the next method is apologetic. I think that's very good. Um, again, it, the emphasis is on defense. So you listen to Muslims. Uh, they might say to you, you are heathens. You, you worship three gods. And then you answer back, however you, you like. And the polemic is more uh, aggressive. It's called seek and destroy by some, rather cynically. But I think, I think it's equally valid. Um, 
so skip that. I think the best method is dialogue. We were talking uh, to one of the brothers here how um, he's witnessed to two of his colleagues or two of his friends essentially by dialogue. They say their bit, you say your bit. You have to respect them, you know, show them that their opinion matters and so on. But I would love to see organized dialogue where you have actually a panel, 10-minute presentation each and, and so on and so forth. I haven't done it myself um, for lack of opportunity, but maybe we could organize it here. Right, on to testimonies. Some of you may be familiar with this guy. He's with Jesus now. I've never met him, but I loved him the moment I heard his testimony. Nabil Qureshi, Pakistani origin, born in the States. Uh, he was friend of David, uh, somebody David uh, Smith, is it? Um, a Christian Muslim apologist who basically used to debate with him. Eventually he came to Jesus. And what brought him to Jesus was the assurance of salvation that as a Christian, you know that you are saved. As a Muslim, you don't. You hope you are saved. The only Muslim who knows they are saved are martyrs. I say martyrs, actually terrorists. People who go and, you know, wear a, a bomb and kill 50 innocent people. They're the only people who are promised a place in paradise. Everybody else has to go through the torture of the grave. It's like purgatory. Um, but he was attracted to Jesus because Jesus gives him assurance of faith. He became an evangelist and an apologist. Unfortunately, he died fairly young. It almost breaks my heart to say it, but the Lord in his wisdom has taken him uh, to glory. There he is on his deathbed, totally emaciated. He said, our God is a God of love. It is important that we discuss matters of truth, but at the end of the day, that is supposed to be undergirded by love and peace. So when I was a young boy, I used to get really angry with my Muslim friends because they're not trained to think, the religious ones. They're trained to repeat, to declare certain things, not to engage. It's, you know, assertion, assertion, assertion. Uh, but again, had we been brought up Muslim, it would have been the same. So I think it's important to bear in mind that these, we, we have a duty of love uh, towards our Muslim friends. This is an amazing guy who was uh, a Muslim scholar. Uh, he taught generations of imams how to argue against Christians, how to prove that the Bible was um, you know, fabricated and so on. But he was reading the obituary section in the newspaper one day and he was struck by how Christians celebrate death like you celebrate a wedding. And he said he, he, he just, it just struck him suddenly. Now, he talked about the torture of the grave. He said, I as a Muslim don't know where I'm going. I, I fast, I've been to Mecca, I give money, I'm fairly generous, I'm well behaved, I don't drink alcohol, but I do not know where I'm going. And um, in Islam, when you die, you enter this dark chamber with two big snakes who beat you and bite you and crush you, and, and if you don't confess your sins, you, you know, you're in trouble. Now at the end, God has to weigh your sins up and you might go to hell, you might go to heaven. What's the point? And uh, w whereas we know, Paul said, 
we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Now, the point here is he knows that he either is here or with the Lord. He knows he's not going to go to hell. Where, or death, is your victory, he wrote to the Corinthians. Where, or death, is your sting? We're not afraid of death. Anyone here afraid of death? Shouldn't be. Praise God. I'm not afraid of death. I stand before you now. There's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is. I'm being investigated. My wife is terrified. And she keeps saying to me, why aren't you afraid? I said, what am I afraid of? What should I be afraid of? If I die, I'm going to meet Jesus far better than being here. But I know he has given me something to do in the meantime. I'm not afraid. Praise God. Um, We know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why should we be afraid? This guy um, was a terrorist, if you like. Uh, Now, he's converted to Christianity by talking to a taxi driver in London. And what drew him to Jesus was that Jesus taught his followers to love their enemies. Whereas Muhammad said, the Quran says, be kind to one another, but harsh with the unbeliever. Okay? Islam says, be harsh with the unbeliever. You'll have heard uh, the British press abuzz with uh, figures showing that Muslims are the most charitable people in Britain. They give more money to charity than anyone else. They didn't tell you that according to Islam, you're not supposed to give money to non-Muslims unless they promise to become Muslim. So most of these Muslim charities actually spend their money on Muslim uh, causes. But he, he was impressed by the love aspect of um, the Christian faith. I have to pause here and remind you that there are a lot of Muslim apologists who are distorting the Christian faith and distorting the Muslim faith. They're trying to make the Muslim faith attractive and the Christian faith unattractive. Last night I was listening to a, an incredible uh, professor of theology from Tunisia who lives in... Um, in France, lectures in France, completely telling lie, complete lies about the Old Testament. Um, but you will hear people, um, ulamas, tell you that love on another means sex. When these Christians meet in churches, they have sexual orgies. And people believe that. There are people who believe that. But anyway, um, th- this is a, a lawyer who... Um, he was looking from a legal point of view at why Christians in Egypt have always been persecuted. And he asked a Christian friend, he said the Christian friend didn't complain, didn't say, oh, 1,400 years, they've been killing us, they've been blah, blah. He said, all they did was give me the Bible. His friend said, read the Bible. He read the Bible, to cut it short, he became a Christian. Um, And he was struck by forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus teaches, forgiveness that Christians live out. Um, by contrast, um, uh, uh, you know, the stoning of the woman by Muhammad, by the way, that verse has been removed from uh, the Quran, and the story that Muhammad's favorite wife gives is that, yes, she had kept it under her pillow, but either a sheep or a chicken came and ate, came and ate it. But we know that Muhammad recommended that a woman caught in adultery should be killed. Well, Jesus... Um, by contrast, 
told people off for judging this woman who was caught in adultery. He actually wrote their sins on the ground to embarrass them because Jesus teaches forgiveness. God is a judge. Yeah? We are not judges. Uh, I will skip a couple. Well, quickly, this, this man called Kamel, he had an accident which uh, led him to be hospitalized for a long time. No home to go to. His surgeon took him home. He lived with the surgeon for a month or so, I can't remember. And um, he used to hate Christians. And through this, he saw a different aspect of the Christian faith, completely different. Um, there's an Egyptian Muslim terrorist who had actually destroyed many churches. And one day his commander said, you must write a book to confute, you know, to um, refute the Bible. Uh, and he gave him a copy of the Bible. You know, if you want to refute the Bible, you must read the Bible. Of course, what happened? He read it and he came to know Jesus. Now, we were saying earlier, I believe Islam spread by force, that's a historical fact, and it retains by fear. You're not allowed to read the Bible. In fact, if you go to Saudi Arabia, you're not allowed to take your Bible with you. They're afraid of it, because they know the gospel is powerful. And here's the victory. It's a confession from Islam that Christianity or the Bible or the New Testament is superior to the Quran. Otherwise, why would they be afraid? And that's proven to be true so many times. Now, has the Bible been altered? That's a commonly um, heard accusation against... Uh, so the story goes, yes, God gave the Quran to Adam, to... Enoch to many prophets after, to Moses and to Jesus. But the Jews and the Muslims have altered it. Now, that is what Muslims believe. If you think how irrational that is, how illogical this is, I don't know if you've ever paused to think about this, because the Quran itself tells Muhammad when he apparently began to receive inspirations, he had doubts, he thought he was demon-possessed, because when he was young, his uh, wet nurse returned him to his mother and she said to him, your son is demon-possessed. Apparently, Gabriel said to him, if you have doubt, go and ask the people of the book. If you think what I gave you is not from God, go and compare it with the people of the book. They will tell you. And of course, according to Muslim history, where did Muhammad go for reassurance? To uh, the bishop of Mecca called Ibn Waraka. No, uh, sorry, Waraka ibn Nawfal, who was his wife's cousin. And apparently he told him, oh no, this is from God. So they needed a Christian to tell them that Islam from, is from God. Now, so if the, if the Quran says that the Bible is the yardstick for Islam, implicitly it means that the Jews and the Christians changed their Bible after you know, some, some, somewhere, you know, during the life of Muhammad or just, you know, at the outset of his ministry. Where's the evidence for that? 
Then one of Muhammad's cousins called Ibn Abbas, who was one of his Sahaba, one of his friends, said it is impossible. He said it's just impossible for Jews and Christians to have conspired and agreed on how to alter the Bible because the Bible was too well spread. In fact, I think it was a Scottish um, apologist who once said if we did not have the Bible, we could constitute it back from the letters of the fathers. It's probably a slight exaggeration. But the Bible was so widely quoted by the early fathers of the church that you could actually almost put it back together just from their writings. And uh, it is as it was then. So the writings of the Father reflect the New Testament. Uh, of course, the Jews have had the Old Testament since, is it 600 BC, Clive? Yeah, thereabouts. Um, so it's actually an impossible task. Now, you must ask yourself, why would Jews and Christians who can't agree on anything virtually since Christ, why would they agree to cover up for each other? That's ridiculous, isn't it? But it goes to show how irrational Islam is. Of course, this is a whole subject in itself and a subject to another book. So uh, I won't go on any further. Uh, okay, that's really for experts. I'm going to give you a scenario. Um, this is a real thing. A Muslim guest comes to your house after dinner in your home. He picks up the Bible from your shelf uh, and he uh, becomes very angry. And he says, this is just lies, dirty, filthy lies, rotten lies, 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 lies. What would you say? Yeah, have you read it? That's a good point. And most Muslims have not read it because they're told not to read it. I mean, I've had Muslim colleagues, sorry for sounding a bit, I don't know what the right word is, but you have to be fairly intelligent to become a doctor. They refused to read the Bible. They said to me, I must ask my mother. So that's, you know, the most, mo I have to say, most Muslims haven't read the Quran because only 15% of Muslims can read Arabic. Um, so your initial reaction would be what? How would you feel? Sorry? Yeah, as you could say he's silly. Yes. I mean, would you feel insulted? Yeah, I mean, you don't do that. And can you imagine going into an Arab Muslim home, pulling the Quran off the shelf and saying filthy lies? How would they react? Yeah. Now, what do you need to share? That's the point. How do you tackle this issue? I mean, I've answered the question in part. I think you need to think about these things. These are real questions uh, that A, they have no evidence. It's just a claim. And that's the thing. Islam is full of assertions. If you look at, for instance, Paul uh, on Mars Hill, he spent time to get to know the people. He reasoned with them. He even found something to praise them about. Yeah? He didn't say, filthy, you heathen. Um, 
and then you need to think about how you would share the truth with them. Of course, that won't happen in 10 minutes, but we need to build relationships with people and try not to get angry. As Lindsay, one of uh, our Clive, well, I got to know him through Clive. He once invited me to do a mission amongst the students in Cardiff. And I remember getting really angry with one of the students. And he said to me, he said to me, you just failed the test. He said, you call yourself a Christian? (laughs) (laughs) So, Clive, how are we doing for time? Okay, good. So, study. Right. So, there's a, um, a Christian, a Muslim convert to Christianity called Brother Rashid. Uh, comes from Morocco. His father was an imam. So, he was brought up, you know, uh, on the Quran. He's fairly knowledgeable. He had a channel called Dare, A Daring Question. I think he had about 600 hours altogether. Unfortunately, most of them are in Arabic. Um, so you won't be able to appreciate them. But he did a survey, um, and he, he shared, you know, he said, this is why I rejected the Qur'an. And he asked, why have you rejected the Qur'an? And, and these are the answers he got. He had 307 responses on Facebook, and the majority object to the hatred and violence and the fact that it, it is not divine. It can't be divine. There's nothing divine about it. It's all about money, power, sex, violence, obeying Muhammad. There's very little about God in it. The word Allah appears quite often, but it's not a book that actually... It doesn't look like it comes from God. Uh, it, then he did the same survey on... Um, we did the same survey on uh, oh there it is this is on Twitter on Twitter so 42% said because of hatred they rejected the Quran it it calls for hatred and violence and 37% said its verses reveal its human origin so these are Muslims who became to Jesus, who came to Jesus, and they tell us that they um, lost their faith in the Quran because it preaches violence and hatred and it doesn't seem to be of divine origin. So that should inform our evangelism. It should, I think, be part of our approach to Muslims. And I think we live in uh, times when we become too apologetic about our faith and afraid to be frank and open and honest. You can be polite and truthful. You know, truth and love go together. You can't have truth without love. It's unloving not to speak the truth. And, um, right, just to make the point that the last surah in in the Quran, the last chapter, is full of violence. I won't go into details, but you can see by the red, virtually most of it is about violence. So it actually says, polytheists are filthy. You are filthy, guys. That's the official line. Now, not every Muslim believes that. You'll all have 
maybe some of you, I can't say all, uh, Muslims who are nice people. And you'll find that they either don't know what their Quran teaches or they refuse to accept it. I've already mentioned this. Uh, I'm just skipping through them because of lack of time. So my own study, I started doing it and then I stopped sending questionnaires because I converted it into a PhD and you have to go through an ethical committee so I didn't want to waste time. But I got about 35 questionnaires and these are responses to, you know, I'm asking people, uh, Christians of Muslim background, factors that repel you from Islam and 18% uh, were put off by attitude to women and that's a big subject. Um, Muhammad had 13 wives and probably 20 concubines. He raped two women and then called them his wives and so on. So the Quran tells you it's actually, I'm embarrassed to say it, but uh, your women are a tilth to you. I think it's disgusting. Uh, attitude to others. You know, non-Muslims are filthy. That's the official line. Again, that's not what all Muslims believe, but that's what the Quran teaches. And, uh, of course, you've got things like uh, jihad and terrorism, which has put them off uh, Islam. And then, I've, we presented it in uh, graph graphic form. So attitude to women seems to be the most common, followed by violence and attitude to others. Factors that... Um, attracted them to Jesus, the highest number was the person of Jesus. And I often say to Muslim friends, just read one of the Gospels as a story. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the character of Jesus. Look at the sayings of Jesus. Look at how Jesus treated his enemies. Look how he had compassion on the poor, on the suffering. Just look at Jesus, not at Christianity. So be careful in discourse with Muslims. Don't talk about the Crusades and Christians. They love doing that. In fact, the Crusade was actually a delayed reaction to Muslim violence, but we won't go there. Look at Jesus. It's the person of Jesus. And again, it's a religion of love and forgiveness and kindness. They're all positive aspects of the, pers uh, the person of Jesus. So, again, of interest to you maybe how they, they actually come to Jesus, by what means. Uh, interestingly, the biggest number was attending a church service. So don't be afraid to invite them to church. And, of course, personal contact with a Christian friend. Uh, I think the third is reading the Bible. I have to add that this doesn't... Uh, I mean, this is a, a certain group, but amongst... Uh, Muslim background Christians from Iran there's a huge proportion who've had a direct revelation from Jesus so many Iranian Christians have seen Jesus in a vision calling them to him and they come to Jesus just like that there are churches full of them there's I think two churches in Manchester which I intend to visit God willing when I have time I just want to share one study George's Husni uh, a Christian from Lebanon. He, he I think, studied about a hundred, uh, a group of a hundred. Um, 
and their profile is before they became Christian, 40% were moderate, 40% were nominal, only 20% were fanatic. It gives you the idea about the sort of... Um, so he said, um, as a Muslim, did you feel that your relationship with God was based on fear, love, or a duty, um, basically doing what is required? And 70% said when they were Muslims, their relationship with God was based on fear. Remember, Islam is spread by fear or force retained by fear. 40% included duty. Not one single respondent said that their relationship with God had been based on love when they were Muslim. And one of the testimonies I skipped was a young girl who committed to Jesus and no matter how badly the um, family tortured her, she would not give up. She wanted... Because she found in Jesus a father, a true father. Um, and that's the father's love. What characteristics of God means most to you now as a Christian? 75% said uh, the love of God. Uh, 85% cited the love of Christians as one major factor. 60% cited it as an exclusive factor. So a powerful means of uh, witnessing for Christ is love in action towards Muslims. And with that, I would like to conclude. Thank you very much for your attention. I think you're crazy. <laughs>
a big uh, thing in Islam. And you'll hear, again, Muslim apologists who are out to beautify Islam, to make it really acceptable, uh, say that, oh, jihad is a spiritual thing. You have to fight against desire and lust and nonsense. That's not, that's, that's their, you know, that's their, um, that's what they want it to sound like. But there is a milit militant jihad which involves uh, bearing a sword and using it to kill the enemy. Anyone who doesn't believe, as I quoted from the Quran, anyone who doesn't believe in Muhammad is an enemy. Islam divides the world into two parts. The house of Islam and the house of war. That's official teaching. The house of Islam and the house of war. We belong to the house of war. Yeah? They, they everywhere, they say, Aslim for Teslam. So Muhammad, when he uh, became big, he wrote to all the emperors of the world, I'm forgetting which letter he said, Aslim Fataslam. Submit to Islam, you'll be safe. The opposite is true. That's not a man of peace. They conquered the entire Middle East, North Africa. That wasn't peaceful. What, what, what had the Christians of Syria done to the Muslims? Why did they deserve this conquest? They weren't invited. There's no way they can get away. So we need to learn to be rational with them. Yeah. There's John there. Yeah. Is it working? Um, yeah, I thought it was a very helpful uh, presentation. I, I think at the very beginning you were trying to stress the difference between the faith and individuals, and I would want to emphasize that as well. Sure. Um, a lot of, as you say, a lot of Muslims do not know anything much about the Quran. It's just what they've been taught. Mm. And there's a different approach to the Quran within Islam. The Quran is there to be interpreted by the specialists, where we would say the Bible is there, and specialists help us to understand it. Um, but I, I would stress it is important to talk to Muslims, to build up friendship. Um, and, and dialogue seems to have been the most effective way mm. um, of people coming, coming to Christ. Mm. Um, it may be a slow process, it may be quick. Um, and certainly being welcoming in this country um, has made a huge difference in some, um, some areas of the country. Mm. Uh, and the other thing I think I'd want to sort of also say is that there's not a lot of point, I don't think, in criticizing Islam or the Quran. What I want to say is about Jesus about what I have experienced of Jesus um, and reach out that way, saying something positive. Let them work out for themselves the negatives of their own Islamic faith. Okay, well, point? I'll start with this, your second point. I think I started by saying that there are different methods and they all have their place. And Jay Smith, some of you would have come across him. He's in the school where he's criticizing Islam. He has results. People come to Jesus. And the surveys that I showed you show that Muslims themselves need help to see, you know, that's, that's what puts them off and that's what draws them to Jesus. I mean, I, what can I say, one of my father's friends in Nazareth in the 40s uh, was a criminal, he used to cut people's ears for fun, and when he came to Jesus, he obviously changed. Not a lot. <laughs> so one day, one day he owned a garage in Nazareth, and one day uh, this guy came into his garage swearing, cursing God, and brother Nusri lost his temper, started slapping him, made him bow, you know, kneel on the ground, 
and asked for forgiveness. And this guy became a Christian. What can I say? Yeah? You know, there are different methods. Now, of course, of course, you know, uh, love, you know, we all like love. But there's this room for, as I said, we have a duty of truth. And the truth sometimes is negative. Jesus shared negative truths. The disciples shared negative truths. And I th- I, I'm not, you know, I'm sorry I don't share your second point. The first point is the, um, you said, um, oh, the Quran is to be interpreted. Actually, the official Muslim line is that Muhammad is the only interpreter of the Quran. It's too late. Now, the only way you could have official interpretation of the Quran is by reading the Hadith. The Hadith is the second most holy um, you know, scripture in the Muslim trilogy, and that is the sayings of Muhammad. We won't say how that came about, but it's very unreliable. But the Hadith actually presents a very negative picture. In fact, it's so embarrassing, a lot of Egyptian uh, enlightened Egyptian thinkers are calling for it to be demolished, removed. Of course, they ended up in prison. So um, I tell you what, you will hear more criticism of Islam in Egypt, a Muslim country, than you dare in the West. We dare not criticize Islam. And I think that's a problem. We, we need to have the courage. Do it for the right reasons. But I think we need courage. Sorry, I don't want to monopolise, but um, should, should we be encouraging Muslims to read the Quran themselves? I mean, I, I've, I've had a conversation with the taxi driver myself, who was a Muslim, driving me back from the airport once. And he said, oh, I've never read it. We just get told what to believe. I said, I've well, tried. You really should read your scriptures yourself. Yeah. I said, go and get a translation and read it. Is, is this what we should be doing? I've tried. Uh, I talked about this colleague, and I was showing them. I wouldn't reveal the gender either. I was showing them, and they said, oh, no, 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 I must go and... Ask my mother. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's a good point, yeah. And, uh, and uh, I think that's where dialogue is good, you know, where you have a panel, because you have the two presented side by side. If I may have another commercial Clive, uh, in two months I'll be publishing a book called Islam, the First Christian Reformation, Success or Failure. And it simply puts Islam next to Christianity, Christ next to Muhammad, the Bible next to the New Testament, let people judge. Is this really the reformed, is this the reformed, the improved version of this? Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. That was an ear scratch. Um. It's either complete contentment Oh, <laughs> oh, oh there you are. the ear scratcher has uh, got his hand up now. <laughs> yeah, I think I just is, agree with you about dialogue. I think the challenge for us is that most of us don't come across or know many Muslims. And so the first challenge, I think, is to get to know them and yeah. to, to have dialogue. And of course we are going to find difficulties and contrasts with what we believe. But we've got to be able to continue dialoguing with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's what you're emphasizing. Yep. So, so it's just meeting common ground, really. 
But I think we need to be equipped. I think we need to, we need to be aware of two facts. In two generations, this country could be a Muslim-majority country. That's a fact. I say it could be. I'm not saying it will be. Um, so they're on the increase, and we need to get acquainted with Islam. We need to read the Quran, not just tell Muslims to read it. We need to know how to answer them. And the Lord has brought him here for a reason. I tell you what, when you come across a Muslim background believer, you're looking at a spiritual bomb. They are full of love and energy for, for the Lord. And uh, it may be the way God is going to save this country. Who knows? Look at Paul. Paul did more work than a lot of the apostles. And he was an enemy of the church. Yeah. Well, Emil, thank you very much indeed. That was a whole... Both, both talks were probably... Um, increased our knowledge of both subjects probably nigh on a hundred percent really we were <laughs> largely ignorant of both so thank you for beginning to open up our eyes to them and uh, and bless you as you go before this parliamentary committee that you've been invited to give evidence to of Christian persecution in the Middle East to the thank you. Foreign Office on Friday thank you good well let us um, Say the grace together and depart. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.